turn your Bibles to Matthew 16. We are going to look at a variety of verses today in our study, beginning a study in or on ecclesiology. Ecclesiology is a fancy, schmancy theological term, meaning study or study of the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. And so beginning this this day and working forward several weeks as we talk first on the nature of the church. What is what is this church we're talking about? We see in a lot of uh, instances here, several instances, actually two, I should minimize my uh, grandiose speech here, two instances in Matthew. The only mention of the church in the Gospels are here in Matthew. Matthew chapter 16, Christ, of course, has taken his disciples out and is speaking with them privately. He asks them, who do men say that I am? And Matthew 16 and of course, they answer, you know, some say uh, this and some say that and some say the other thing. And then Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? In verse 15, and that is when Simon Peter, the chief, if you don't mind, of the apostles said, answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That testimony, that doctrine about the nature and work of Christ, that he is the Christ. He is the son of the living God. He is Messiah. He's the one hoped for and promised. And, and the, whole, the whole testimony about him is the basis now. That confession is the basis of what Jesus goes on to say here in verse 17. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal that this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say, verse 18, this is where we, we see his mention of the church. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so we see Christ is going big time with this, with this phrase, this statement of Peter. And he says, I'm giving you a new name. I'm giving you, emphasizing this new name. You are uh, Peter. This play on words here, Peter and what we see here as rock are the same word, different endings, different uh, uh, ways of saying it, but that means rock, it means stone, and not just a little pebble, but something that is substantive, something that is immovable, something that is uh, foundational even in, in a lot of respects. And so we see as Peter goes forward, and I'd, I'd love to trace the history of Peter in his presence at each time that the gospel goes forward in fulfillment of Acts 1 and verse 8. You know, Acts 1.8, where he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the world. You can look on the map over there. Jerusalem is a city in Judea, the region, just to the north of that is Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. That's like Kentucky. That's where the gospel has gone forward as a result of the apostolic teaching. But at each time that the gospel went forward into a new sphere, if you don't mind, Peter was there. He was there in Samaria in the giving of the Holy Spirit. He was there in, in uh, Caesarea, not this one, Caesarea Philippi, but in Caesarea Maritime on the sea when Cornelius, the Gentile guy, the gospel went forward and they were baptized in the Holy Spirit and, and, uh, and became Christians. He was also there, of course, in Jerusalem, the preaching of the gospel at Pentecost in Acts 2 and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And 3,000 souls were added to the church on that day. So Peter had a very important role to play in that church and in the, in the advancement of the gospel for the church. And Jesus says here, upon this rock, I will build my church. Who's the one building? It's not the apostles. They're active. They're, they're part of the process. But it's Christ himself who's building it. He's promised to do it. He will build. And notice it's not 
that church or their church over there. It's my church. It belongs to me. This is my body, as we'll see some different terms that are used in relation to the church. But he says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. That is to say, not even death can stop this work. Death is not going to stop my work. Death is part of my experience, part of my ministry. Jesus came to die for our sins. We will die sometimes as martyrs, Christian martyrs, witnesses for the gospel, sometimes through death, through uh, uh, just natural death. But the point is, this church transcends death. This is something outside of, of this life, outside of this time even. And so we see very, right from the beginning, Jesus referring to a universal church, something that is not just a local church. Christ didn't promise to build Liberty Bible Church, for example. Now, he, he did by extension of his emphasis or his promise to build the church, the, the universal church, that which we would refer to as everyone who is in Christ following Pentecost, following that first preaching of the gospel in Acts chapter 2. We see in contrast to that, again, in Matthew, Matthew 18, if you don't mind turning forward a page or two, Matthew 18, and much more. I'd love to camp out on Matthew 16, 18 for more, but for our purposes, we want to see Jesus referring to a universal church, and now he's referring to a local church, a, a designated body of believers. This is in the context, of course, of a discussion on how do you help people who are in sin, and how do we have a responsibility to correct and even restore those who are in sin. Uh, Matthew 18 and verse 15 says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've won your brothers. brother. So that's what we ought to do. If there's sin, we don't need to take an offense. We need to say, oh, I've been wrong. I'm a victim here. Oh, I'm just, why do they hate me so much? No, we have a motivation to go and help that one who's offended, who is doing the wrong. We go and show him his fault privately between you and him alone. You have a private conversation. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. You've restored that relationship, which is what we ought to do. Remember that unity thing we talked about? Blessed, you know, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for those, for brothers to dwell together in unity. Well, it means this. If your brother sins, your sister sins, you go and deal with the sin with a desire to restore the relationship, not to make sure they, they know, they understand how much you have been offended and hurt by this. You are more motivated of love and compassion, concern for them, that they would have uh, the growth that they need in this situation. The problem is, what if they don't listen? Well, verse 16 says, if, if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So we're not off the hook, by the way. If your brother doesn't listen to you, well, you still go in your rescue mission. You are, you are on a restoration work to restore them to uh, Christ, to restore him to usefulness or her. And so you bring two others that can confirm the conversation is going forward. Not necessarily witnesses of the offense, because that might be hard to, to corroborate and try to find a, a witness to whatever event happened. But in terms of the conversation we're having together and, and their response to it, if they're listening, if they're penitent and humble and convicted over their sin, then those witnesses can confirm those things. Verse 17 says, and this is where we see our this, the word church used twice here. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
Now, would Jesus be referring to the universal church that we need to send a, uh, like an APB, an all points bulletin to all the churches and, you know, all over the place and say, you know, brother so-and-so, he's not listening to us and y'all ought to take notice of him. And no, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about a local church, a local body, an organized body of believers. He says, tell it to your church, the church that you guys are a part of. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, which is just unthinkable, why would, okay, maybe he's, he's not giving any, or she, credence to you, and maybe even to these other witnesses come alongside, but to the church, not listening to the church, motivated out of love and compassion, then let him be to you as a Gentile, as the Gentile, it says, and the tax collector. Not that we now can therefore hate the person, as I say, punch him in the nose and kick him in the shins. No, we're, we're motivated out of love for the person, but realizing, whoa, they're not listening. They're not listening to the gospel. Those who are acting out of love for them, they refuse to hear. They would rather revel, perhaps, in their sin and their disobedience. I need to regard this person as an unbeliever and evangelize them, not treat them any longer as a brother or sister in Christ, but somebody who's outside and needs to repent you know, fundamentally of their sins and trust in Christ. And so we see this responsibility. <coughs> It, uh, that we have toward those who are erring. The point here is both in Matthew 16, we see the universal church. Here in Matthew 18, we see the local church. And that, that distinction, as we look at the way that this word church is used in the Bible, we need to uh, say, okay, he's talking about the universal church over here, the big picture idea. And now he's talking about the local church and, and how it's organized. We can see some other aspects of the universal church. We'll talk more about the local church as we go along, not today, but in the future. But the universal church is can be characterized as the invisible and the visible aspect. You think, I can see y'all, so this is the visible church. Yes, yes, it is. Those who are in the church meetings, those who have some affinity toward the gospel, some identification with a church, a local church, or even a denomination, as we see uh, in our modern day, we talk about church, uh, whether the Church of Christ or the Roman Catholic Church, uh, those are different, not, uh, or the uh, Baptist churches or this kind of thing. But we're talking about the visible church, those who have some identification with a body of of, uh, of faith. Now, that does not mean that the visible church, everybody associated with the visible church, is regenerate, is saved. Do you remember how Jesus said it? And you write this down. I, I can't go to that parable. I'd love to. Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tares, uh, beginning at verse 24, Matthew 13. And he basically says, let them grow up together. Wheat and tares. Wheat, which is the desirable fruit, and tares, which are not let them grow together until the time of judgment. And then we'll separate them out. Then we'll, we will deal with it. And so there is, in the visible church, unsaved people who participated in the life of the church, but were not regenerate. Well, it's good for them to be part of the church. They're hearing the gospel, and yet they need to be saved. And so the visible church would include those. The invisible church are those who are saved out of all time church in, in heaven, church on earth. In fact, that brings us to our last uh, contrast, I suppose, the militant versus triumphant church. The church militant is that church on earth, warring. The, the, we are warring against ourselves, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We are warring against things that are contrary to God, every thought, taking every thought captive. We are at war. Now, we often don't want war, right? We want peace, which we ought to want peace. And yet, there is a peace, as I've mentioned before, that only comes after a war. And we are at war. We are the weapons of a warfare, not Carl. I'm not asking everybody to take up your arms against other people. But to take up the truth. We always wage war with the truth. 
and speak the truth always, always, always. And that is what changes hearts and changes minds and even changes destinies. You know, humanly speaking, God is sovereign and elects those whom he elects. But in our perspective, we, we are faithful. We press forward with the truth of the gospel of love and so forth. But the church militant is that which is warring in this world, dealing with sin, dealing with false doctrine and, and all these things, versus the tr church triumphant, that which is in heaven, in glory. There's a, a hymn that speaks about these things. Verse 3 of the church's one foundation says, Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious her longing eyes are blessed, and the great church victorious shall be the church at rest. Picturing the church militant, the church triumphant in that contrast. The word church itself in our English language, of course, comes from a variety of other uh, languages derived ultimately from a Greek term. But we have church most like a Scottish term, which is that, as it should be, I'm sure. Uh, the kirk is, is that word. And we, of course, have church as a, a direct um, derivation of that, coming from an old Saxon word, kirka, and the Middle German, kirsche. Kirsche. Is that how you'd say it in German, I believe? But it comes from a Greek word, kuriakos. It is only used twice, never in relation to the church, but always twice, once in relation to the Lord's Supper. So the supper that belongs to the Lord. And in Revelation chapter 1, the Lord's day, or the day that pertains to the Lord, the first day of the week. And so kuriakos can or did become used to describe those who are related to the Lord, those who are in identification with the Lord, and always referring to the people, not so much the building. In fact, we can refer to the, um, well, we'll get into that in a little bit, what the, how, how we use that term church. But first, we need to look at some images of the church. We'll look at several scriptures in this regard. One of the primary uses, primary images of the church is body, the body of Christ. The body of Christ spoken of, for example, in... I don't know. Let's start in Romans chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 12 and verse 4. speaks about the body of Christ, this, uh, this uh, group of believers gathered together around Christ. And it says, Romans 12 and verse 4, Just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. But having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, whether prophecy and agreement with the, with the faith and service and serving, we have teaches and teaching, exhortation is exhortation. He who gives with generosity, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And he goes on and discusses these things. But the point there is, of course, we are many. We have different gifts according to the measure of faith given to us, verse 3 says. And we're one body, and we ought to maintain that unity in Christ. First uh, Corinthians 10 and, and 12 also speak about that and really emphasizing the unity, but also the diversity of, of folks in the church. So many times, many times, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight times in Ephesians, we hear this term body being used and how important this body is. Ephesians 1 and verse 23 talks about his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Verse 16 of chapter 2, that he might reconcile them both, this is both Jew and Gentile, in one body to God through the cross, having in himself put to death the enmity. I have mentioned about Ephesians 4 and verse 1, being diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Verse 4 says, there is one body and love and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. 
is verse 3. I was misquoting it. Verse 1 says of 4, chapter 4 says, walk in a manner worthy. But verse 3 says, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And verse 4 says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you are so called, and one hope of your calling. That unity is what he's emphasizing here, this body. It is unnatural. It's not a good thing if your body, your physical body, starts doing things that your brain never told it to do. That's why, remember, we studied in Colossians 2 about they're not connected to the head. Well, that's not a good situation. If your body is not connected to the head, you don't know what you're doing. And this arm might be doing something, this arm might be doing something else, and your eyes are doing whatever else they're doing. And we want to make sure that we are one body under the headship of, not me, don't look to me as your head, we look to Christ. Christ is the head. We look to him. He, we honor him. We obey him. He is the head of the body, the church, Colossians 1 and verse 18. And so so much about the, the body of Christ is spoken of here. Another term is flock, a flock. Luke chapter 12, verse 32 says, do not fear. Jesus talking to his apostles, his followers, do not fear little flock, for your father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. You are a little flock. Now, a flock of what? A flock of sheep, which they're not too clever. They're not too industrious. They're not too creative in their in their precautionary uh, designs. They, they get into problems all the time. They, they fall over, and they need help. They need rescue from wolves and dangers and all kinds of things. But Jesus refers to us not as a dumb bunch of sheep. He says this, you are a little flock. You are a term of endearment even. I've come to be the good shepherd, John 10 says that we'll look at in a moment. Fear not, little flock, for your father is well pleased. He is just so excited and delighted to give you not just a little portion, which is very important, right? Psalm 23 says he leads me in, in paths of righteousness, but he, he gives me green grass and safe waters. Well, that's, that's the least of our concern. I mean, he, we need that, but how much more uh, leading us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake? He, our Father, is well pleased to give us the kingdom, a right relationship with him, salvation, and care under his uh, sovereign reign. John 10, of course, much speaks about the identity of us as the flock, but more importantly, Christ as the good shepherd. Christ is the shepherd of the sheep. He says in John 10 and verse 16, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They'll hear my voice. They'll hear. We listen. That's why, going back to Matthew 16, if he doesn't listen, if that brother who's sinning doesn't listen, well, Jesus says, my sheep do listen. My sheep do hear my voice. As they're spoken in love by, by those in the church, they need to listen to God's voice, to Christ's voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Christ is that one shepherd. And he goes on and talks about those who are not part of his flock, who don't believe, who don't listen to his word, who don't have eternal life. And he says, no one will snatch them out of my, my hand, those who are in, in uh, my flock. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So there's a tremendous statement of Christ's deity, Christ's relationship with the Father, and our identity, our safe identity in him. Acts 20 also speaks about this. Acts 20, verse 28 uh, through 30, speak about the, fl the flock that the elders, especially in the church in Ephesus, were to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with, the, with his own blood, but backing up in verse 20, be on your guard and for yourselves and for all the flock, all the flock. Don't treat them as stupid sheep. Treat them as beloved people who you, whom you are serving. You are serving with the truth. Be careful that you uh, are diligent with the truth of the gospel because it goes on in verse 30. 
False doctrine is going to come from without and from within. Some of you guys I'm looking at right now are going to rise up and teach perverse things in the church. That's not, it's not acceptable. You be on guard for yourselves. First Peter 5 also talks about the flock, and it talks about the chief shepherd. Uh, the shepherd, the flock of God among you, chapter First uh, Peter 5 and verse 1 and 2 and 3 and 4. Verse 4 talks about the chief shepherd. That's Christ. That's the word senior pastor, if you don't mind, the archipoimen, uh, uh, the, the chief shepherd, the senior pastor. Uh, and it's referring to Christ. If there's any adjective that ought to come before the word pastor, it would be under, under pastor, or if you don't mind, under shepherd. We are under the pastoral work of Christ himself. And any pastor who tries to do anything outside of Christ that's a false teacher. That is a hireling. That is somebody who don't even bother to listen to. You submit yourself to the chief shepherd. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Honor Christ. We'll get into more of the local church dynamics and the eldership and, and deacons and so forth uh, in a few weeks. You think, oh, really? Yes, and in a little bit, we'll get to that idea. Why is that so important? And, uh, and we'll see. Some other things to talk about the flock, but we need to move on. Another image we see used in Scripture is the wife or the bride of Christ. The wife or the bride of Christ. It emphasizes that love, that honor, that cherishing, that intimate relationship that the church has with Christ. It is spoken of, for example, in Revelation 19. And the bride, or the, the wedding, the marriage of the Lamb. Let us, uh, Revelation 19 and verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And we see it re referred to here. We also see it in relation to the coming of the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, and how that uh, relationship that we have in Christ is so powerful. Of course, we see the picture in Ephesians 5, as Paul gives instruction regarding wives to submit your husbands, and husbands love your wives, but it's in connection or picturing the relationship between the church and Christ. The church submits to Christ in all things, so the wife ought to submit to her husband and everything, and Christ loves and loved the church and gave himself for it and, and does all these things for her benefit, for her sanctification. And Paul goes on and describes that in much, much description. And yet he says, this mystery is great, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. This is the relationship here. Christ's bride is the church. Universal church again, right? Not the local church. It's not just one, you know, the preferred Baptist church over here. No, it's, it's all of us who are in Christ are his beloved. Nevertheless, he says, Verse 33, Ephesians 5, Nevertheless, let each man love his wife and the wife see to it that she respects her husband. So there's very important things, practically speaking, for us. But remember, this is picturing the relationship between Christ and the church. We see this, the scripture speaking of the church as the temple of God. This is an important doctrine, too, in that in the Old Testament time, Christ related to his people through a building. Now, it was a portable building, first place, right? The tabernacle, as it was, was put up and, and, and put down and transported to a new, new site and put back up and, and all these things. We see it in, even in relation to our reading for Samuel chapter 1. Where did Elkanah go? He went to Shiloh, because that's where the temple was. That's where the altar was. That's where all the, the, the worship and service of Yahweh was. In the time of Solomon, that tabernacle was done away with, and a temple was built, a permanent structure there in Jerusalem. And Christ himself came to dwell in that place. Yahweh, the, the glory cloud of God, came to dwell in that place. But now we have the temple of God within us, in our own bodies, and in the church at large. 
Ephesians 2 and verse 19, a tremendous uh, passage. Ephesians 2, again, we, we looked at it earlier about how Christ has brought the two Jew and Gentile into one body. Verse 19 says, uh, Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So if we were to refer even to this place as the house of God, well, it isn't, unless we're here. We are the dwelling of God in the spirit. People, not this place. We could meet, you know, if we went to the next door over, if we met in the parking lot or met in the, in the park, that is where the spirit of the Lord is. Not this building. We like this building. It's really useful to us. But this is not God's house. We are God's house. We who are in Christ have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. Another aspect, last image we'll look at, or well, second to last, I should say, is this picture we have in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul speaks about the important work that we have of conducting ourselves in a manner, again, worthy of the gospel, but especially as we gather together in the church. And 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14 is after a long discussion about eldership and deacons serving in a local church. And he says, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you soon. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. So we are the house of God. We're also the household, the members that live in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And then it goes on and describes this common confession, how doctrine is so important, and especially the doctrine of Christ is so important to the identity of the church and the nature of the church and the understanding of the church's role or work in this world. But he says, this church of the living God, wait a minute, I thought Jesus said it's my church. Matthew 6, 18, 16, 18. It is Christ's church. It is the church of the living God. In other words, Christ. Revelation 1, I was dead, but behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. I'm the first and the last. Christ himself is that one. And so we have the church of the living God. And notice it describes it as the pillar and support of the truth. Not to get too much into architectural lingo, but a pillar is something that holds up something. And the support is the thing that holds the pillar. And so we're both the pillar and the support, the churches, and especially, I would say, the local church is in this context. Now, the church at large, but especially as, it's, as it is expressed in individual congregations, we uphold and, and support the truth. It's not to say that the truth rises and falls with us. The truth would, would be established regardless because it's, it's God's truth. And yet our work, our specific work, is, is making that truth beautiful, making it heard, making it evident in this crazy mixed-up generation. Titus 2 gives us pictures of this. What, what, how do we do this? How do we relate to the, this, this work of upholding and, and, and supporting the truth of the word in our relationships? We talked about unity from the opening scripture reading and, and our, our song, and yet the way that we conduct our lives in this world, the way that we conduct ourselves in family units as wives, as husbands, as children, young people, as older people. Titus chapter 2 speaks about that, but there are three phrases used here, and I'll just highlight them, just kind of skip through them. Verse 5 says, we do these things so that the word of God will not be slandered. The world is looking for a way to slander the gospel, slander Christ, any kind of, any kind of mistake, 
faux pas, error in our lives, looking for a way, a reason to slander Christ and say, well, obviously, we don't need to listen to Christ because look at you. You, you claim to, to know Christ and you're a mess. So we want to live in such a way that the word of God will not be slandered. We're going to do it perfectly? No. We're going to be ultimately righteous, not in this age, but we should press on. We should strive. We should be very careful to think it's not just my testimony being slandered. It's not just the testimony of the church that I belong to being slandered or blasphemed because of my conduct. It is Christ himself. The word of God will not be slandered through our conduct. Verse 8 says, so that the opponent will not be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Why do we conduct our lives carefully and circumspectly? Because we want to give the enemy no opportunity to glory in our weakness. We ought to glory in our weakness, but not make the enemy in that way, that he would be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. And finally, in verse 10, that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything, making it beautiful. I mean, again, you, you put something on a pillar, something that's beautiful, right? You wouldn't put a rotten apple on top there or, or uh, something that's just disgusting. Hey, look at this, everybody. We uphold the truth, the glorious truth of God's word. That is our uh, responsibility. Last image we'll look at is congregation is used just a few times in, in scripture. Sometimes it's, it's uh, translated, this word translated as multitude or people or even assembly. It can refer to those who are following after Jesus, right? The multitude or the crowd. It's another word for crowd, but this idea of a lot of people gathered together for some reason. Uh, people at the pools of, pool of Bethesda, also the multitude and assembly of people, not for the purpose of Christ, but because there was something going on there. You can read in John 5 about that. Uh, even the Sanhedrin itself, this body of, of uh, Jewish political religious leaders is called a multitude or a, a congregation. People in the temple, and this is interesting, in Luke chapter 1, verse 10, there was a whole multitude outside the temple or in the temple, waiting for Zechariah to come out after the the uh, incense offering there, and it was they they paid attention. That was when it was announced John, you know, he's going to have a son named John, and so forth. We see a very similar thing, a multitude at the beginning of that gospel time, and the and the word of God going forward in a mighty way through John the Baptist. But we see it again in Acts two and verse six, when the sound, the sound of the Holy Spirit coming down upon the apostles and those nearby. Uh, when that was heard by the people, I think, in the temple, the multitude came together. The multitude again, the, the crowd, the, the group of people, the assembly came together and we were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. We see a multitude gathered in the temple at each time, starting in Acts, or excuse me, starting in Luke chapter 1. We see it again in Acts chapter 2 and how the gospel went forward. But a lot of times this word congregation is used in relation to the church or an assembly of folks. Acts 4 talks about the congregation of those who believed. Acts 4 and verse 32. Um, Acts 5 speaks about it. 14, uh, 15, 16 talk about it. The problems they had about widow, widows, Hellenistic widows who are being overlooked in the daily distribution. Well, they came to a resolution about it. This word pleased the whole congregation, this whole assembly, this whole group of people. And so we see these different terms being used in a variety of ways, but always referencing the fact that there's a lot of people, or a small number of people, but not organized by household so much. We have households together worshiping the Lord. We have, although Jesus himself said, I'm going to set all kinds of problems in your family, you know, parents against their kids, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and all these, because of the gospel. Not because we need to be at enmity with the people. No, we live at peace with people. But the gospel divides. The truth of God divides. When we get together, it's, it's as if, you know, my, my parents may have abandoned me 
physically or spiritually or whatever or cast me out because of my faith in Christ, but I have a group of people that I love and adore and fellowship with and share uh, a wonderful redeemed life together with. And so there is great joy in this multitude, in this community that we have, this assembly. The last image, or the not the image, but the word that's used most often in Scripture, of course, brings meaning to our phrase, as our, our word, as I mentioned before, ecclesiology, comes from the Greek term ekklesia, which means a, an assembly or a group of uh, folks who have been called together for a purpose. It has this idea of being uh, summoned or, or being called, uh, being invited to something. And it's for some purpose. It's not just an uh, informal gathering. There's some reason why, why this, this assembly has been called. Now, we see this term used in a variety of, spa of places or, or instances, and there are different, different ways that it's used. It can refer to an, a non-religious assembly. For example, a riot, a group of people in Ephesus had gathered together to protest this, that, and the other thing in Acts chapter 19. And it was not a lawful assembly. It was something that was going crazy. And there were, it was really a disorderly gathering, it says in Acts 19 and verse 40. So it can be a non-religious assembly. It refers to, probably just once, I think, in the New Testament, but many times in the Old Testament, the assembly or the congregation of Israel, specifically at the Mount mountain of the giving of the law, the Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb, Acts 7 and verse 38 speaks about the congregation in the wilderness. It's not the church. The church is not present in the wilderness. That's the nation Israel. God is forming the nation at that time. It's really the ratification of this covenant that God has with his people, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. And so this congregation, though, it's not the church. It's the congregation, the assembly of, of, the, of the Israelites there before the Lord. Often in the Old Testament, this word is used in relation to that. We have seen it, this word used, in relation to the universal church, the church that is uh, outside of time or, or from the day of Pentecost to the very future date when all that last one will be saved and brought into Christ. And that is the universal church mentioned so many times. Jesus, I will build uh, my church upon this rock. We see the church of God spoken of, spoken about or uh, as we saw in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Not a local church, but the universal church. And so we see that mentioned a lot. We see it very often also in relation to a local church, a, a, a congregation identified, ordered, organized with a, a committed membership, a, a identifiable a, a shepherd group or body of elders who care for the church. We see this mentioned as we saw in Matthew 18, tell it to the church, if it doesn't listen to the church, and so forth. Paul had a great emphasis about planting churches, not just about planting a, a nebulous church and y'all are part of the, of the body, of the big body, and so it doesn't really matter if you're in a local body. He established local churches. He established local assemblies, and he was very diligent to appoint elders and to make sure that they had shepherds. Elder, we'll get into this again later. Elder, pastor, overseer in the New Testament, same office. Three different ways of looking at the same group of men who care for the church, who lead it, who teach it, who admonish it, and shepherd under God's authority. So there are different aspects of what, what constitutes a local church. Well, we'll look at that too. I mean, you guys are just ready to go, aren't you? Uh, we're just so excited. But a congregation is a local church. It is a 
an identifiable group of people that are gathered together. In fact, there are several different ways that we can consider this. We can talk about the local church in terms of the congregation, the people who are in it. And of course, we, we would talk about the church. You know, I'm, I'm going to meet with the church, and that's we're talking about the people. We can talk about, hey, I'm going to church. Well, that can refer to, I'm going to a church meeting, which is reasonable to say, I'm going to church. And we see this in uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and 14, when you come together as a church, which is to say in a church meeting, or even in the church, we're supposed to be ordered, had to conduct ourselves in an orderly fashion. So we can refer to the, the people, we can refer to the, the instance of a meeting, we can refer to the church in a city. Um, by the way, I skipped over one thing. Church in a house. Is it possible for a church to meet in a house? Well, sure. You might not know this, but our church, Liberty Bible Church, began in homes. We didn't have a, a, a formal meeting place. We met in homes, and that was fine. Does that mean we're a house church? There's a little bit different mentality regarding that phrase, differentiating between a house church and a church that meets in a house. I would liken it to the phrase cavemen. You know, who are cavemen? Are they the brutish kind of folks hunched over and eating whatever, raw, whatever? No, just people who lived in caves for whatever reason. David, King David lived in a cave for a little while. Caves of Adullam, you heard about it down in Shvela. And he was in another cave another time. Elijah dwelt in a cave, for, a cave, excuse me, cave for a while. It's just a place to live. But to say we're a house church has a little bit different idea. Hey, we're just in the form of gathering. We don't need official leaders. We don't recognize this. We kind of come and go or more more, uh, let's say, fair, right? Um, free living is how that goes, it's a French term. No, a, a church needs to be ordered. If you say, we're going to do church at home today, well, wait a minute. How many people are going to be there? Just yourselves? That's family. That's family worship. You need to be in a church. You need to be under the care, the, the, the oversight of men who love you, who are motivated out of compassion, kindness, and truth. And you need to be part of a, a group of people who will grow with you, weep with you, uh, rejoice with you, admonish you, be admonished by you. It's important, this, this idea. So to say, well, we're a church in a house. We see churches meeting in a house. We saw it with Philemon, the church that was in, in, in his house, church of Nympha, church of, you know, um, Quilla and Priscilla. When they were in Ephesus, they hosted the church in their house in Ephesus. When they were in Corinth or Rome, when they were in Rome, they hosted the church in their home. It's not where the church meets. It's how are you organized? How are you structured? How, what are you doing as a result of that? So we see the church also referred to as a church in a city, the church at Corinth, the church at Ephesus, the church at Jerusalem, Antioch of Syria, all these different places. Certainly, Revelation 2 and 3, the church in Ephesus, Smyrna, um, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. We also refer to the church in a region, the church, churches of Syria and Cilicia, or Galatia, or Asia, or Macedonia, which, by the way, pictures the expansion of the gospel. Church in, in Judea and Galilee and Samaria is right there, and then it expands up to Syria and Cilicia to the north, Asia Minor, Galatia, Asia, Macedonia. <coughs> Macedonia, just north of Greece, Europe. The gospel is going forward. You see this, this wonderful expansion of that church throughout time and throughout history. This is a very important study for us to realize as we get, again, organized, better organized as a local congregation with our bylaws and identifiable, uh, identifiable um, 
membership, covenantal membership one to another, and then to establish for official, for reals, if you don't mind, uh, eldership and the shepherding pastors who are working to serve us in this congregation. I just remind us as we conclude, Matthew 16, 18 says, Jesus promised, I will build my church. You're, you're part of one of these timeless institutions. I mean, it's wonderful to be part of, of a, a Christian ministry. It's wonderful to be part of a, a Christian home, a Christian family. But to be part of the church, be part of his, Christ's intentional uh, building, his construction, I will build my church. We belong to him. And death may come or go. It doesn't matter. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Our desire is that we would be part of God's plan, of his provision, of his purpose even, of establishing and building this church. Institutions come and go. Families come and go. Individuals come and go. But the church is being established as that bride of Christ, as the body of Christ. And we have a role, a work to fulfill for the service of Christ's kingdom. How are you doing with that? Are, are you committed to God's people? Are you committed to Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? Are you in Christ at all? Today is a day of salvation. Look to him. Christ is my Lord. Christ is my Savior. I am so grateful that he died in my place. I don't have to die for my sins. Jesus died for me. And then he's given me, not just to myself, or have a special relationship with God, but he's given me brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I can grow and be be growed, that's really bad language, but to be uh, edified, to be built up in the faith, to be admonished, to be corrected, to be uh, taught and, and instructed in these ways. Wow, what a gracious gift God has given to us. Let's not squander it or neglect it or say, well, it's good for other people, but I don't really need that church. So many people in this age have done that. I don't need the church. Jesus and me, we've got a good it's bad grammar again. Jesus and I have a special relationship, and, and I, don't, I don't need the church. Churches, you know, I don't, I don't go with organized religion. Christ said, this is my church. You better pay attention to it. You better be part of that, of that local assembly. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your truth, this wonderful word of the gospel that brings us out of darkness into light and the, out of being uh, absent from, from Christ, but to be in him and to have a relationship with, with you, but also with one another and how life-giving that is. It's not a burden to be part of a local church. It's not a chore to, to, to say, oh, um, you know, I don't, I don't want to listen to that again, or I don't, want to, I don't, I don't feel comfortable singing, or you know, I have nothing to wear, or, or I'm tired, it's been a rough week. Please help us to value the local expression of your body here in this church and other churches around this world that are faithful to you, teaching your truth and, uh, and being a pillar and support of the truth through their conduct, through their speech and everything. We thank you for your tremendous life-changing work and please help us to value your body and to fulfill our work in it. You've given to each one of us a special gift, a special work, a special responsibility. Please help us to be faithful in the exercise of that thing. We are stewards of so much. Please help us to be faithful. Brand Christ's name. Amen.